listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out how a Saskatchewan company has become the go-to when it comes to developing expired film. And they handle requests from right around the world. They often describe their work as opening time capsules for a living. So what do they find? You'll be surprised. One of Canada's most prominent names in retail passed away over the holidays. Harry Rosen started with a small loan and a big dream opening a single store in Toronto back in 1954 that would grow to 17 stores across the country when he passed away at the age of 92. It's still a family-run business, and his grandson Ian is now president and chief operating officer. He joins me to talk about his grandfather's incredible life and rich legacy. She's helped some of the best of the best in sports, entertainment, science, industry, you name it, learn how to overcome mental roadblocks to peak performance. And now Dana Sinclair has put it all down in a new book. She's here to talk about it. It's called Dialed In, Do Your Best When It Matters Most. But first, it's been nearly seven months since that horrific crash involving a minibus and a semi-truck on the Trans-Canada Highway in Manitoba claimed the lives of 17 people, mostly seniors, on a day trip from Dauphin to the town of Carberry. On Monday, the Manitoba government announced what it will be doing in the next few years to improve safety at that dangerous intersection where the crash happened. We speak to the daughter of one of the victims of the crash about her mom, the life she lived, and her reaction to the province's plans. It's been nearly seven months since that tragic crash on the Trans-Canada Highway in Manitoba near the town of Carberry claimed the lives of 17 people. We, of course, talked about it uh, at the time on the show. It was a devastating uh, event for the province, for the country, and specifically for the town of Dauphin, where many of those traveling on a minibus heading from that town to a casino near Carberry were based. It collided with a semi-trailer where Highway 5 meets the Trans-Canada Highway. It's a pretty popular crossing. It's also been flagged in the past as being a risk. There have been accidents there in the past. The causes of the tragedy are still under RCMP investigation. But yesterday, the province released what's called a road safety strategy report that really aimed to improve safety at that particular intersection. As I mentioned, a spot that had raised concerns long before what happened uh, last June. The government review was launched to look at upgrades, potentially including traffic lights or an overpass. Uh, Police said dash cam footage showed the southbound bus went into the path of the east truck, which had the right of way. In the weeks following the tragedy, the province did place some additional signage in the area, but the crossing remains controlled only by a stop sign. Here's Premier Wab Canoe yesterday. This is a difficult uh, topic for all of us, but more so for the family members of those we lost in this terrible tragedy, and of course for the survivors. That was Wab Canoe, the Premier of Manitoba. Of course, he wasn't Premier at the time. The government, though, is committing $12 million to improve that intersection. There are medium-term fixes that include a roundabout. Uh, that means, you know, will require some more study. A widening of the median to give drivers of larger vehicles more space to stop, such as a minibus, and take care when crossing. And a restricted crossing U-turn or R-cut, which demands that you sort of go up the highway and turn around and come back. Uh, one of those three options will be selected through public consultation later this year. It should be completed by fall of 2026. Carberry Mayor, though, Ray Muirhead, says he'd like to see the speed limit near the intersection reduced. So even if they could reduce the speed back to 70 or 80, with you know, the difference of 10 or 15 kilometers could, 
you know, make the difference between survival and non-survival. Well, it's no coincidence that the Premier and others made this announcement in the town of Dauphin yesterday, first meeting with the families of the, vic- of the victims before making this report public. Sharon Weeb's 87-year-old mom, uh, Claudia Zerba, from Fork River, uh, north of Dauphin, was one of those lost on that awful day. Uh, the family were th- amongst those who met with the government uh, yesterday for an update. And Sharon joins me now uh, from Alberta. Sharon, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for having me. You know, I was looking at, uh, I was thinking back to that day, obviously, I can't imagine, uh, and my condolences to you as well and to the family uh, for what happened on that day. But I was looking at the photos of your mom and, yeah, I I often wonder sometimes, uh, you know, we see the images and we we see the names. We don't know much about the lives they lived, the people they loved. Uh, Your mom sounded like a a hell of a woman. (laughs) My mom was um, full of life, living life to the fullest. Um, she lived alone on our on the farm where we were all raised, all five of us children, with uh, my mom and my dad, 27 miles north of Dauphin. She drove to Dauphin often. Uh, she, we, we always joked because she was a better driver than, well, she thought she was a better driver than most of us because she would always say, turn here, go there, watch this, watch that. So she was an avid gardener. Uh, she, you know... Did had lots of friends in the neighborhood, sang at the church. She wanted to be involved in, if she was invited to something, she'd go. And she'd usually go on her own. Yeah, it was mentioned that she loved to travel, she loved to shop, and it sounded like a trip to uh, the casino in Carberry would have been something she would n- never have said no to. Correct. And it was actually the very first trip that she's ever taken on her own without my dad or you know, one of my siblings. So it really was, um, it really gave her that freedom to go do something without, you know, one of us accompanying her. I mean, take me back a bit to that day, if you can. I realize how tough this stuff is. Um, I know you're in Alberta and and how how did you you learn about what had happened? Oh, well... (laughs) That's a traumatic day, you're right. And I just want to acknowledge, if anybody is listening, before I tell you a bit about that day, if anybody is listening, you know, that their parent or their grandparent or, you know, was on that bus trip that day and they haven't spoken to the media yet or even anybody else who has had, you know, family or friend or somebody really close to them that has been, you know, killed in an accident you know, like this, whether it was at that intersection or somewhere else. I understand why they don't come forward to talk, because it's like ripping a wound open over and over. It's, it's difficult. It's, it's, it's stressful. And for some people, it's easier to not talk about it. And I've been there. But now I realize I need to talk about it because we are the voice of those people who cannot speak any longer. So that day, uh, my husband and I were um, south, of, uh, south of Okotoks, about two hours. And um, we, I had a little bit of time, so I wanted to call Mom because I hadn't spoke to her in a few days. And actually, I meant to call her Wednesday evening, but I know she's tired in the evening, so... I didn't call her, and I thought, I'll call her Thursday. So I called her, and there was no answer. And I thought, well, that's 
strange. At this time, she's usually always home. And it was around 4 o'clock Manitoba time. And I thought, well, where could she be? Because if she went to town, she always went first thing in the morning and was back shortly after 12. So um, I called my sister, Adrienne. Um, she lives about two hours from mom. And I said, and I had already heard about the, the bus accident. One of my nieces in Brandon had already posted that there was an accident on Facebook. And I was like, okay. I had no idea my mom was going. No, I had n- no idea. Like, she had never taken a trip on her own ever before, as I said earlier. So I called my sister and I said, hey, do you know where mom is? And she said to me, where are you? She goes, are you alone or are you with Al, my husband? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm with him and I'm in Cardston, which is two hours south of Okotoks. And I said, wait a minute, was mom on that bus? And she screamed, yes. Oh, oh wow. The... You know, we all looked at that day and wondered what could have been done differently. I can't imagine what it would like to to be in your shoes. Um, you know, so much has been talked about that intersection and what should have been done. And what was your reaction to what happened, to, to what you heard yesterday? Because I know that I, I saw that your sister had spoken uh, about what had happened and, and her reaction to the announcement. Um, what are the, what questions have you had over the last, over the last seven months or so or eight months? Uh, and what did you make of yesterday's announcement? Uh, thank you. Um, well, you know, I've lived outside of the province now for more than 40 years. So before this accident, I wasn't even aware of the problem there because I don't travel that far usually. You know, Dauphin is much closer than that intersection is. So, um, you know, I've learned a lot looking online, looking at pictures of the intersection, looking up some of other accidents that have happened there. You know, I talked to a cousin of mine in in Edmonton, and she said she used to live in Brandon, and she said um, a local um, young man who was off to university was coming home 15 years ago and was killed at that same intersection. And she said to me, I can't believe nothing has been done. How many people have to die before something is done? So I was really looking forward to uh, yesterday's press conference. And um, to tell you the truth, I I was very disappointed in what came out. Uh, First of all, um, family members who live close by are you know, could go there earlier and find out all of the information first. I asked to be part of part of that, even though I live 12 hours away, I was denied. So I just, I said, you could just have a separate Zoom link that it, it would have been private. It would just have been, you know, whoever doesn't live in the Dauphin area. And when you consider that many people have passed away, I can guarantee you, there is immediate family members that live beyond the Dauphin area. And we are, we are being left out. 
So I'm speaking on behalf of all of them that, you know, maybe some would have been there, maybe some wouldn't, but we should be given the opportunity. Nothing that we really know specifically has been done. Lines have been painted on the road and some signage has been put up, but we don't know what that signage is. I don't know what that signage is. My sister was at the event yesterday. She doesn't know what that signage is. What I'm saying is something could be done more immediate. And I was on an interview yesterday and I said something as simple and effective as electronic reader signs could be put up. They're put up for construction sites. They were put up across our country, coast to coast, when we had COVID, warning people that they were going into an area that, you know, they could potentially get COVID. Or when it's used for a construction site, it says construction ahead, slow down. So on these electronic readers, it could easily say, you know, dangerous intersections, slow down, be aware. Something should be done. And yeah. not, this isn't just for I me. I get the impression this you is, think that... This isn't just for me. The people... That this is something that, that could have been avoided. ...that area, yeah. in that vicinity, mm-hmm. are re-traumatized every time they hear sirens. And the stat that was said yesterday by, I believe it was the mayor of Carberry, that six out of ten... Emergency calls are for that corner. That's a lot. Now, an overpass won't be built, from what I understand, yeah. for 25 years, because there's not enough traffic. There's only a count of like 5,000 vehicles a day. Well, if this many accidents are happening with 5,000 vehicles a day, you know, imagine what's going to happen over the next two years, two and a half years, really, by the time whatever they decide is going to be put in is put in, how many more accidents are happening if they do nothing progressive in the interim? Sharon, uh, I, you know, this is, um, I suspect you think that this, is all, this could all have been prevented. 100%. 100%. 100%. You know what? As a homeowner, if I don't well, clean I really my pre- sidewalk, yeah. if I don't clean my sidewalk, and somebody walks and slips and falls, I'm liable. Like, and if I, don't, if I still don't clean it, the town will come and clean it and charge me for it. These guys are putting, these guys meaning yeah. the government. They're like, this all takes time because we want to do it right. Excuse me? Something can always be done right now. And it's not being done. So there's been several. Sharon, I really, I, I really appreciate your, 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 yeah, I really appreciate your time tonight. We're having a tiny technical difficulty. I know there's a bit of a delay, so I apologize for the way that's worked. But thank you so much for sharing your mom's story, um, and I hope you get to see what you want to see done with that uh, in memory of your mom and everyone else that was on the bus that day. Thank you. Also, in memory of all the other people who have passed away there and who have been hurt. And for the people who have to live with this trauma in that community, it's not fair to them. We need to be Sharon, the voice. Again, my condolences and thank you. Thank you for sharing me. your story tonight. I know how. Thank yeah. you, Ben. What the hell's going on out here? Well, Nick's scared because his eyelids are jammed and his old man's here. We need a live. Ro- was it a live rooster? 
We need a live rooster to take the curse off Jose's glove, and nobody seems to know what to get Millie or Jimmy for their wedding present. Is that about right? That's right. We're yeah. dealing with a lot of I think, well, uh, candlesticks always make a nice gift, and uh, maybe we can find out where she's registered, maybe a place setting or maybe a silverware pattern. Okay, let's get to it. Here we go. Is there a cooler movie about sports psychology than Bull Durham, right? So that's one of my favorite scenes from the movie. Uh, You know, grace under pressure, thriving under pressure is not an easy thing to do. I remember years back when I was doing my first live hits on TV as a rookie at Global News in Montreal. And lo and behold, of course, the first one went great. So I thought, I've got this made. I know how to do this. Uh, And maybe because of that, the second one was an absolute disaster. My hands were shaking. I lost my train of thought. I was a deer in the headlights and right there you sort of see your life flashing before you, your eyes as you're trying to do this uh, on air so uh we've all been there in one way shape or form put into a pressure moment where you want to do your best and it just all goes wrong right in my case it was just a question of practice and prep i sort of figured out that i needed to sort of have a have a road map as to what i wanted to talk about where i wanted to go so if i start to get a little lost i could find uh find a vantage point quick and come back so that was my comfort zone that's how i figured out that problem uh, early on thankfully um but again we've all been in similar situations everything from presenting at a staff meeting to going to a job interview meeting your your you know, significant others, parents, you name it. We're in pressure situations where we want to do well. And sometimes you just get in your own way, right? And that's that's the problem. My next guest has spent years working with those for whom peak performance is an absolute must. Pro athletes and coaches from the NHL, Major League Baseball, the NFL, NBA, race car drivers, golfers, Olympians, uh, surgeons, entertainers, actors, executives, and people who just need help coping with stress when the chips are down. Again, the key apparently is just to figure out how we get in our own way. And then most importantly, come up with a plan and act on it to how to step aside and get out of your own way, so to speak. And it's not just for athletes and the like and those for whom you know millions are riding on it, but anyone, any of us who are looking to improve the way we do something. Uh, Dr. Dana Sinclair has put all that knowledge into her first book. It's called Dialed In, Do Your Best uh, When It Matters Most. And Dr. Sinclair joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. I'm glad to be here, Ben. I was just reading about your uh, the path you took to get to where you are and it's a fascinating one because you did quite a bit of different stuff before you you landed here. Well, it wasn't really well planned, but it's worked out well. So for those of you who aren't sure how you're getting where you're going, don't worry, it all works out. Tell me a bit about because I was reading through the book and 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 there's some incredible st- stories. There's a lot of sort of examples that you provide. Uh, but it ca- sort of came down to me about this whole idea of fear, of just being fear of failure, fear of a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, and that puts us under pressure and that all gets in the way uh, of doing doing what, performing as we hoped we would perform. And I know you work with a lot of incredible people, a lot of really gifted people, but this isn't just for them, right? Not at all. It's for everybody and anybody who wants to be just a little bit better. And, you know, we're all performers, everybody wants results. We all want to be good at what we do, but it's hard in those pressure moments sometimes to get to what you know you've got. And that's what the book is about. How do we get in our own way? And I should mention to listeners, there are examples here that go everywhere from from professional hockey, both on the ice, behind the bench, professional baseball, to people, you know, trying to get through job interviews. So it's, it's, it's a, there's a huge, uh, you paint with a, with a big brush here, but what traditionally gets in the way of all of us? 
it is learning to control our emotions when we really want something or when it's meaningful. As I say, most people are doing fine by, by themselves, thank you very much, except when they really want it or need it. That's when our tension rises, we can't stay calm, and our mind shifts and drifts over to things that aren't germane to the task, and they are not productive at all. That's why people have to learn to cool it a little bit and be able to shift back over onto something that's actually helpful for their execution. And there's a way to do it. It's yes. not as hard as people think. I was going to say so much easier said than done, right? For most of us, you're like, you know, the one, the one words, the, the words you learn never to use as you grow older is, you know, calm down, right? Never say that, never say that out loud. But don't say but, it to somebody. Yeah, yeah don't. <laughs> but, in, but, it, but internally, that's what you're supposed to be doing, right? Yes. But there's, you can, yes. Getting calm is probably the biggest skill anybody can use to get more out of themselves. So calming down is, you can say that as long as you drill down to telling yourself how to do it. You've got to tell your body what to do in the moment so that you can make it happen. If you just go around saying, calm down, uh, well, it, it's better than nothing, but it's better to be a bit more specific than that. One of the things that came out because, um, there, you know, near the beginning of the book, there's sort of a, a bit of a self-analysis section uh, is that we're not always great. And I'll include myself in this because I was reading it, you know, from my perspective. We're not always great at judging our own weaknesses either. And and so in reading through the kind of person you are and then being able to sort of control some of your bad habits through it, that, that can take some doing as well. You really need to understand where you're making these missteps. Yes. Everybody has a performance style. Some people have an easier one to work with than others, but we all have things that we're good at behaviorally strengths. And we all have a few things that ah, maybe we should tweak a little because they do get in the way. And it's easier to just gloss over the not so good stuff, but I like people to face those fears or those things that aren't so great because you're not going to get any better until you do. So you might as well bite the bullet and get at it. You have an interesting example in the book as well. It's not just athletes, it's about a judge who uh, really liked the way he was in the courtroom, but found himself very annoyed at disorganization. And he felt like it sort of took away part of the veneer, or at least part of how he hoped to be in a courtroom. And it was interesting because it was such a prime example of sort of letting other people impact the way you are and not being happy about it. Absolutely. And he, you know, he did not like how he performed in those moments when he got tense and annoyed and angry. And, you know, he felt he wasn't as objective and he wasn't presenting himself as well. So he changed it. And the guy was good, too. From the get, I mean, oftentimes with the examples that you provide throughout the book, people are already good at things. They just want to be better at them or Exactly. There's, they feel like there's one thing that's standing in their way. You know, like I could do this well on my own. All of a sudden in a job interview situation, I start to crumble at the same time every time. Absolutely. And that's a very good point because I'm always saying talent doesn't ensure success. It's your mindset. If your head is cluttered and it's drifted, you are not executing as you could. So you're not going to be happy because you're not going to get the results that you know you're capable of. Tell me a bit about about some of the myths that, that you looked at, because I know that one of them was about confidence. We often talk about confidence yes. um, and you often bump into people who seem to have quite a bit of misguided confidence, but tell me a bit about, about the whole issue of confidence and why you don't think it's that important. I, in terms of actually performing, it isn't as important to me as other things because I feel performing well is more about what you're doing and what you're focused on as opposed to how you're feeling. Feelings can mess us up at the wrong moment. So I always say that confidence is 
it's overrated. You might want it. It might make you feel calmer, but it doesn't necessarily translate into doing better. You had a good example uh, with someone that you worked with who I think was on American Idol uh, with, with about that very issue. Absolutely. This uh, this this wonderful person, uh, I spoke to them after their first audition, and I expected to be, you know, hearing all sorts of whoops and hollers. She had to perform in front of Katy Perry, Lionel Richie, and so and she got through. And what do I hear? I can't do this. She was freaking out. Everybody's so much better than me. They're more confident. I don't have any confidence. I can't do it if I don't have confidence. And I, I stopped her and said, wait, didn't you just do it without confidence? Oh, yeah. I said, well, how'd you do it? Oh, well, I have a really good voice. Okay, so then we, you know, could set the stage for then learning to talk about what do you need to do in the moment. I don't want you focused on how you feel and how worried you are. When she took a breath, connected to the music, to the song, and reminded herself to stay on top of those high notes, she did a great job. So after that, whenever we she talked about confidence and I'd look at her and she'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. It's overrated. Yep, stay on top of those high notes. Okay, got it. So works anywhere. How does that translate into, you know, I was trying to think of other examples of times where, you know, I mean, maybe it's a presentation at work. Maybe you For need sure. to, yeah, I mean, it's all of that. So as you oh, said, we're meeting. all performing all the time. Talking to your boss, talking to your kid, talking to your spouse, getting into trying to avoid a conflict situation, getting annoyed with someone, someone being cranky. There's all every day, all day people perform. It's just sometimes it's easy because the stakes are low or you're good at what you do. It's when, again, that pressure mounts, it's under pressure that we need to maybe prepare a little bit differently. I had someone ask me the, this week about sort of envisioning success. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about sort of picturing yourself doing what it is you want to be doing. Do you think that works? I do, right. but I like to talk about it a certain way. I, I think daydreaming is a great thing. Lots of people say, oh, you shouldn't daydream. Sure you should. Focus daydream, daydreaming helps you stay calm. It helps you get better at a skill. It allows you to step up and maybe try to, yeah, envision what you really want. And that would, you know, get out there and think about it in your head first. Maybe you actually can do this. It helps you fight back, practice how to fight back in a situation where you need to do a better job. I don't mean physically fighting. Well, unless you're a boxer, but, you know, trying to, uh, deal with a mistake and get right back into the performance instead of just giving up. So you got to fight back sometimes too. I think uh, daydreaming is one of those things. Do it for five seconds and then go off and do something else. You do that three times a day and you might see some some changes in how you feel about things and in some of your results. So yeah, I'm all for it. Dr. Dana Sinclair is with us. She's a performance psychologist. Her new book is called Dialed In, Do Your Best When It Matters Most. I was, I mean, it was astounding the 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 sheer volume of people from different walks of everything that you've worked with. Uh, when do people generally call on you? It can be any time and it can be from a variety of different sources. Sometimes people will call when there's trouble and other people will call when they think they, you know, could use maybe more structure and think they can be better and want to use any avenue they can to be better. You share a lot of stories uh, in the book. I should mention that the names aren't names. You're left to try to figure out who she may be talking about. But what are some of the ones that really stand out to you in terms of trying to explain what it is that you do and how this works, how getting out of your own way is probably the most important thing you can do? 
Well, there's a number of things. I'm thinking of uh, an example it was with a baseball player, a catcher, very good catcher. Um, I went to visit him uh, at AAA Stadium, and you know, you, you know, you have to deal with all the all, all the things like trying to get through the the clubhouse full of men when you're the only woman. It's pretty funny, really. Good I'm picturing guys. Bull Durham. I'm picturing Bull Durham. Yeah, well, that's exactly what it is. It's, yeah. And they're, they're lovely. They're all very, you know, nice about it. Anyway, there's one guy that I was dealing with, this catcher, and he was distraught. He was worried about his career. And so we went out and sat in the stands one day before a game, and he told me he just could not catch pop-ups. And it was ruining his career. He couldn't get to the big leagues. The coach was, you know, not happy with him. All the guys were laughing and betting on the ball. So I didn't worry about how he felt at the moment because we didn't have long. We had to go into sort of speed speed mode. And I just asked him, okay, well, how do you catch a pop-up? And I made him actually show me. And he had to go through the process. And by the time we got through, I made him drill down because he kept missing things because he's good at it. But if he can explain it to me, okay, now I understand that. Once he finally explained it to me, he realized, oh yeah, okay. I have way more time to catch this thing than I think. And I'm just getting too wound up and too tense. So I've really got to slow down here. So once he figured that out that night, he caught, he caught a pop-up Dugout went nuts, and the guy was back actually on the way to the major leagues and was one of the catchers for one of the best pitchers we've ever seen out there. He had a big career. Good for him. Yeah. He thought it through. He drilled down for himself, and he thought it through. I I thought that example was so uh, acute because it did remind that what what everyone is afraid of is failure, right? And sometimes that that, – and disappointment and and getting it wrong, and and all of a sudden you get yourself in a bit of a knot because clearly – Clearly, he knew how to catch a pop-up. I mean, yes. he did. But so, and, and this applies to just about everything. Um, you mentioned, or we talked a bit earlier about about the kinds of mistakes that people make. Uh, what are the best solutions? Then, because we're all very different, and not all of us are dreaming of playing in the big leagues or uh, or have something quite as straightforward as I don't, I can't catch a pop-up or I can't hit a curveball. Uh, but but in day-to-day life, what are some of the things that you recommend people do, sort of from the get-go, if they feel like something is holding them back? Well, the number one skill to employ to use is, as I say, it's like you've got to be able to got to be able to get calm and stay there. And it sounds so simple, almost trite. It's so simple, but it is true. I have had, I think in the last week, I've had three professional athletes tell me that all they did was breathe and it saved them. One professional and NHL goalie said, I think I, I breathe over 50% of that game. I kept telling myself to do it and he played great, but three of them said, this is it. This is what I really have to stay focused on because it allowed me to do my job. So besides that being the number one skill, there's a few other skills. You really do have to sit down and like we talked about earlier, that self-reflective bit at the beginning of the book. Okay. What gets in my way? What are my obstacles? What are my hot spots? Like I'm actually pretty good, but there's one or two things that really do irritate me. I hate making a mistake. I can't get back on track. Maybe I worry about others' expectations. Maybe I'm just thinking about the results. That's a big one. Everybody has to check that one off. Um, maybe I'm a bit doubting. Whenever I worry about, um, you know, if I'm speaking negative, negatively to myself, that's when I know I'm going to go off the rails a bit. You have to isolate those things, face those, and then you can get to the skills. And once you're there, and again, this applies to just about everything, I, I, I suspect in reading through this, 
that you don't necessarily need, and I mentioned it earlier, you don't necessarily need to use these all the time. That there are, that, you know, there are moments in your life where you know the chips are down. Not always, but you or you or you know that there's something you just want to be better at because you feel like it's getting in your way. And I, I found that was a really interesting way of looking at it. So, so I suppose you you just everyone knows what those situations are to some extent, don't they? Well, they do. They just avoid them a lot of the time. But you really should have a little bit of a plan thought out. Just have it in your back pocket in case you need it. Don't leave your performance to chance, especially when it's important to you. I mean, I've I've dealt with, um, you know, I've been at chemotherapy treatments with people just to help them get the hang of how to deal with the tension and the negative thinking that goes around it for some people. So again, you can apply this to anything. And I just say, pick a skill, pick something and give it a go. You might want to use more or might not. That might suffice. Just have it ready to go, just in case. Right. And 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 just you had sort of a list of things to do, you know, take action, slow down, listen more, drop right. the details. But I, I guess all of this is just, again, about getting out of your own way. Yeah. And those are what I call the difference makers, because people who are handling pressure best, better, they do a little bit more of one or two or all of these things, those five different things that I was talking about. Any last words to people out there? Because I know a lot of people sometimes look at performance psychology and think, oh, that's, you know, if I'm going to play at Wimbledon next year, I'll need this. But in my day-to-day life, I don't know how it applies. Right. Well, I think it applies to everybody. And I think if you can learn to shift when you drift, you're going to get a better performance, which leads to confidence and all sorts of satisfaction. Well, Dr. Sinclair, uh, I, I will continue to spend time trying to figure out who, who, who exactly the people in your book are. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. I enjoyed that. I found this one to be a really odd thing to do on behalf of a conservative MP, Leslin Lewis, who, of course, ran for the conservative leadership um, twice, uh, didn't win, obviously. Uh, she's also in Pierre Polyev's shadow cabinet these days. She's the MP for the Ontario riding of Haldeman, Norfolk. Um, and she issued or put out a uh, something on social media, on Twitter or X, as they call it now, uh, pointing people towards a petition that now has about uh, 76,000 signatures. So quite a few. Uh, it was brought forward by a Burnaby, BC resident named Doug Porter. And he essentially posits that Canada's involvement in the UN um, is a bad thing. That, in fact, it undermines our national sovereignty, um, that uh, it brings does more harm than good, essentially, and that Canada should really pull out of the UN and its subsidiary organizations, such as the World Health Organization. Um, now, of course, Canada has a long history of the United Nations. We were one of sort of the founding members of the United Nations. And for a very long time, if you remember back to the previous conservative government under Stephen Harper and the, this current liberal government under Justin Trudeau, they both vied for seats on the Security Council, made a big deal about sort of having a very prominent position at the UN. Of course, neither of them worked out. Um, so it's been really interesting to see sitting politicians with any political party for that matter, elected politicians, people who are prominent members of their parties, sort of endorse a petition uh, that, quote, urgently implements Canada's expeditious withdrawal uh, from the United Nations. This, you know, I mean, for all its warts, it is really the only thing out there of its kind, right? Um, 
I should mention that to talk about this, I did reach out to Leslie Lewis's office and never heard back. I reached out to uh, conservative foreign affairs critic Michael Chong's office. They declined. He didn't have time or something along those lines. Uh, it was interesting today because there's been a whole thing about uh, this uh, reporter with uh, the rebel who was uh, arrested briefly yesterday for um, as he was attempting to question Christia Freeland. He apparently, I don't know the whole circumstances around the story, seems to have bumped into an RCMP officer. I won't get into the whole thing. Uh, but he was arrested, which of course, you know, anytime the police arrest anybody uh, doing any kind of work along those lines, it's always a bit of a red flag. I'll let the authorities figure out exactly what happened. But of course, the conservatives have turned this into a big, uh, a big freedom of the press issue. And Leslie Lewis today was saying that it's essential in a democracy that journalists get to ask questions the government doesn't like. And it was ironic, of course, because Leslie Lewis Lewis will never return. I've asked her a few times, I believe, to be on the show, and I've never, ever heard back um, from anyone at her office. Uh, I was curious as to what's going on here, because, of course, Canada and the UN have a very long history. Um, it's been sort of essential for a, for a middling power like Canada. These multilateral organizations have always been a big benefit to us because we get to be heard, uh, where might isn't always right, uh, as would often be the case in other organizations. Uh, so I wanted to get and but without denying the fact there are some issues with the United Nations and the way it's constructed. And again, the United Nations is the world as it is, not as we believe it should be. So is the right move here, if we're not happy with, even for people who aren't happy with the way the United Nations is uh, and some of the commitments we make under the auspices of the UN, uh, should we just, you know, in street hockey terms, pick up our net and go home? Or are we better off as a country trying to, um, you know, for some changes, or at least try to see some changes within the organization that we think are needed. Michael Manulek is an associate or assistant professor, rather, of international affairs at the Norman Patterson School at Carleton University. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time on this one. Yeah, happy to happy to be here with you, Ben. What do you make of this? I mean, it's it's rare that we talk about Canada's role at the United Nations, unless something is something bad is happening generally. Um, but this has been a far more Sort of interesting discussion because I've never heard anyone sort of bring up the idea that maybe Canada shouldn't be part of the preeminent international organization. Yeah, it's 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 a little bit surprising uh, to be honest. To, to my knowledge, no country has ever left the United Nations. You do see some of this and on on Fox News and so on in the United States, and so perhaps there's a bit of a, a bit of an echo of that uh, of that conversation. But I have to say, I was uh, I was struck and and uh, more than a little surprised to. Uh, to read, uh, to hear about this, and then to to read the petition. Tell me a bit about the petition itself, because there are many issues with the United Nations in terms of which countries sit on which uh, on which committees and so on. But this doesn't have much to do with the substance of what the UN is up to. It's more about ideas of sort of sovereignty and the sustainable development goals, which is an interesting one because they're non-binding. But what does the petition say exactly? Well, the petition looks at uh, Canada's uh, Canada's engagement in the World Organization, mentions in particular the World Health Organization, um, and um, and some of the challenges that that uh, participation in the organization has meant for uh, means for Canadian sovereignty. In particular, it looks at the Sustainable Development Goals, which are a set of non-binding uh, goals, as you mentioned, that were established in 2015. Uh, to pursue things like an end of uh, world hunger, uh, to tackle climate change, uh, to promote gender equality, a whole range of different uh, 17 uh, goals in particular, I believe, and then and then a number of other indicators in those uh, following from those, uh, but looks at the sustainable development goals perhaps as an undue uh, infringement on Canada's sovereignty uh, and therefore advocates that Canada uh, withdraw from the organization. Well, I mean, because they are, I mean, if you read the sustainable development goals, they are aspirational at best. I mean, they, they are what they are. They're, they're a, a, you know, they're sort of a set of good intentions. So 
down to brass tacks then, because I, I don't believe that anything the UN decides is necessarily binding for a country like Canada. What 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 threat is there then to Canada's sovereignty or independence of action when it comes to being part of the UN and sort of uh, and being party to these to these initiatives? Yeah, I mean, there are there are a range of different agreements in the context of the United Nations. Uh, so, for example, uh, there are decisions that can be taken in the context of the UN Security Council that are binding upon all members. Um, and Canada, as as you're probably aware, hasn't sat on the UN Security Council since I think 1999, 2000 was the last time uh, we had a seat on the council. Um, and so, um, so in those cases, there can be there are some um, there are some limitations of Canadian sovereignty, but that is. Um, that is a a, um, a form of participation that uh, that all countries have agreed upon, and Canada took it upon itself to pass uh, Parliament, you know, through Parliament legislation that uh, the United Nations Act that uh, that brings Canada into the organization and accepts that. Um, there are a whole bunch of other binding uh, treaty-based commitments that Canada undertakes that are affiliated with uh, the United Nations, for example. Um, the uh, many of the UN specialized agencies have a treaty basis in international law that can uh, that can prove binding in international law. Um, but Canada takes these decisions and has always taken these decisions in its own self-interest, right? Canada um, uh, accepts certain costs in terms of its sovereignty. We do lose a certain degree of autonomy in terms of our movement. Um, but the benefit of having other countries similarly bound brings overall benefits to Canada. And that's why Canadian governments have been strongly supportive of the UN system uh, since the beginning. Yeah, I mean, successive governments have struggled to try and get a seat on the Security Council, which would tell you something about government's overall support, not just for the UN, but being seen to be part of an important part of of the UN. Uh, Where then, I mean, Canada, we should point out to listeners that Canada has a long history with the United Nations. In fact, in many ways, Canada was part of the genesis that is now the United Nations. Yeah, Canada has, uh, has, when the United Nations was created in 1945 at the San Francisco Conference, Canada was very much uh, present at the creation of this organization. Diplomats like Norman Robertson and Lester Pearson, who later became Canada's prime minister, were were very active in those negotiations and then subsequently shaped the organization. Pearson became uh, the president of the UN General Assembly, to my knowledge, the only Canadian that has ever occupied that important position in the UN context. Uh, Canada really built its network in the United Nations and was very effective through a series of crises uh, to um, very effective in promoting and protecting its national interests and ensuring that Canada and Canadians had had a voice as major international developments were underway. Um, and this has really uh, brought uh, brought a certain level of prominence, but but also has has, has protected the self interest of Canadians and also served Canadian values in the promotion of uh, important principles of democracy and human rights, which are really institutionalized within many of the norms, rules, and procedures of the United Nations system. Uh, values uh, that that are important and that Canadians hold dear. It's strange to see a country such as Canada, and you're right, a country that is not huge, but has carried perhaps outsized influence within the UN context, especially being able to be seen as a bit of a mediator between some of the major Security Council powers like the UN, like the US and the UK and other countries. At least, you know, that was kind of the, the legacy that we've had at the at the organization. Has much changed in the last in the 21st century? I mean, those, I mean, much like the European I was in England for the for the whole Brexit debate, and much like uh, the European Union. Uh, people who want to poke, find holes or problems with the United Nations don't have to look very hard because there are clear issues with the UN and the way some countries ascend to the head to, to the head of certain organ certain groups and so on. Even though they have you know horrific human rights records and so on, there are many faults, warts with the UN, but it is the only body of its kind that we actually have. 
Yeah, it's it, that's absolutely true. Um, what's important for for I think everybody to realize is the United States or the United Nations reflects the world that we live in, right? And the world that we live in is is a messy place. There are many uh, governments who have, as you've mentioned, uh, terrible human rights records. Um, they um, uh, they 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 victimize their own populations uh, and so on. And we have to. Uh, work alongside those countries. And then in some cases that involves getting our hands dirty to a certain extent. But um, in a lot of cases, it provides opportunities for addressing these types of human rights violations in a way that would not be available if if an organization like the United Nations were to lose its legitimacy, were to be, become less central to uh, to international politics. And so Canada really has uh, an interest in being uh, being at the table uh, for these big conversations. And sometimes it is it is challenging to uh, to work alongside these regimes that that we question um, to to see them ascend to heights within the Human Rights Council, for example. Um, and 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 to to play that role, um, but that's that's as I mentioned, a reflection of the world that we live in. Michael Manulak is with us this half hour, assistant professor of international affairs at the Norman Patterson School at Carleton. We're talking about Canada and the UN. Of course, you may have seen uh, articles about a petition circulating, one promoted by Conservative MP. Leslin Lewis. I've noticed that Pierre Polyev and uh, Michael Chong, the foreign affairs critic, have not said anything about this. Uh, it calls for Canada. It's a private, uh, it's a petition started by a citizen out in Burnaby in BC, um, but it calls for Canada to withdraw from the United Nations for issues of sovereignty and so on. Uh, Michael, I, I guess when one looks at the at the UN in 2024, uh, you can see places where it would need reform. The organization has a, seems to have had a very tough time reforming itself, but where would you begin to make it um, an organization that Canadians can sort of, perhaps Canadians are a little disillusioned with the UN these days? Yeah, I mean, UN reform has been a longstanding uh, challenge. And and I think before we, um, I think the first place is UN Security Council reform. Clearly, the P5 veto wielding members of the Security Council um, reflect the balance of uh, international power from 1945. Um, and many countries are um, looking at some of the geographic limitations and some of the changes in, in, in the current global situation and seeing this is not uh, representative, not reflective of the world that we live in. Uh, the United States has thrown its uh, support recently uh, behind uh, UN Security Council reform, uh, but this is this is institutionally a real challenge, as we face with many institutions, national and international. Uh, uh, anything that requires uh, fundamental constitutional reform, which would require amendments to the UN Charter, uh, so really the constitutional basis of the United Nations, there are some real uh, real challenges, and that's why um, I think. A lot of times we look at, at kind of procedural measures as we have in the Canadian context with respect to the Senate, for example. Um, but um, I think I think that that reform would start there and that Canada uh, has uh, uh, engaged to make uh, the United Nations uh, and the Security Council more procedurally effective. And I think we can uh, that Canada has played a very constructive role in in, in many of these uh, many of these institutions in pursuing reform. Um, and I think I think. The point, one of the points I think I would underline is that, and we often get this sense that somehow we're participating in the United Nations because of our values, that the, the real hard national interests uh, are pursued through the G7, through NATO, maybe the Five Eyes. Um, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. Canada has always participated in the United Nations to pursue its uh, hard national interests. And as we face increasing challenges as the world is changing, um, we have to recognize that the United Nations is very much the operating system upon which all of these other institutions are predicated. Um, and so Canada needs to, uh, I think, not 
look at stepping back its engagement, but actually recognizing that we are existing in a pivotal moment in the history of the United Nations, where many governments who have values that are very different from our own are seeking to rewire that organization at a fundamental level. And just as we are stepping back in our engagement in the United Nations, just as the United States may be stepping back in its engagement, these organizations are stepping forward to ensure that their own nationals occupy prominent positions within the secretariats of these organizations. They are seeking to undermine or challenge norms around sovereignty, around the privileges that powerful states have vis-a-vis less powerful states, um, and they are seeking to fundamentally alter this organization. Um, and so this is the time where we not should not be taking a short-sighted view, stepping away, recognizing the challenges that this organization faces, but actually stepping up our engagement as a way of uh, ensuring that the norms that we value, like uh, democracy and human rights, which are very much institutionalized in the DNA of the United Nations, are preserved and in fact uh, augmented. Yeah, I compared it earlier to whether you stay and play, whether you disagree with a call or you pick up. It's a street hockey analogy. They're they're always great in politics, or whether you pick up your net and go home. So the, the, the petition itself, I, you know, verbatim says negative consequences on the people of Canada far outweigh any benefits. And I suppose, um, you know, that that's you you could find examples to try to point to try to make that case. But it strikes me that that really what Canada should be doing is is playing a leading role in trying to get the trying to shape the UN to be more like we would like it to be. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And I think just to to key on to that issue of the. Uh, the, the the negative consequences outweighing the benefits. I think that there are a lot of really important benefits that are overlooked. Um, the work of the different UN agencies, specialized agencies like um, the Universal uh, Postal Union, the International Telecommunications Union. Um, these organizations are actually fundamental to the lives of Canadians in ways that are taken for granted um, uh, uh, all the time and overlooked. Uh, by Canadians, things like the delivery of international ma- mail, standards about around telecommunications that that span the globe, all of these things are fundamental to the daily lives of Canadians, and UN agencies are fundamental to making those things happen and to work so well as they do. Um, so we shouldn't uh, take that uh, take that for granted. Um, similarly, as um, as we tackle some of these big global issues like climate change, we're seeing wildfires and extreme weather, the loss of biodiversity, efforts to govern AI and cyber. These are all issues that cannot be addressed through a bunch of regional organizations or some alternative to the United Nations. You need truly global solutions to these truly global problems. And the United Nations is the only game in town for these things. Uh, and so Canada uh, really um, really needs uh, to up its engagement as we're uh, addressing these questions on a global basis. Uh, and then finally, as crises break out, whether it's wars uh, or, or civil conflicts, the United Nations is the place where these conversations are had. It's the, it's the global town square, and Canada really has a strong interest in having a seat at the table for those conversations and by either pulling ourselves out or seeking to delegitimize that organization. I think we, will, we risk entering into a world where, uh, where that, that global connective tissue breaks down, and really what you get is a world where might makes right rather than uh, a set of uh, rules and institutions that frankly, serve Canada's interests very, very well. Yeah, I don't think Canada does very well in a world where might makes right, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Michael, thank you so much for your perspective on this. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It was a good, uh, good conversation.
You know, his life story really reads like a screenplay. And I've spent time in Harry Rosen's stories over the years and didn't really know much about the history. But uh, a smart, ambitious guy in his early 20s, works in retail, thinks he can do better on his own, borrows 500 bucks, and with a partner, his brother Lou, as it turns out, opens a first store, betting on himself that it will all be a success. Well, in the case of Harry Rosen... That's not fiction. It's fact. Uh, the first store to carry his name opened in Toronto's Cabbage Town on Parliament Street back in 1954. And in doing so, he would launch what would become, uh, at the time of his death on December 24th at the age of 92, uh, really one of Canada's preeminent menswear retail businesses uh, with 17 stores now right across the country. Uh, the business has passed through three generations of Rosens at this point. Uh, Harry's son, Larry, is now the CEO and his grandsons, Graham and even Ian serve in executive roles. Uh, and I was really interested to find out more just about the history and how amongst the many, many, many retailers out there over the years, why Harry Rosen has managed to not only sort of grow and thrive, but also to continue to succeed uh, as that industry has changed so dramatically, including with the competition from American companies and so on. Uh, you know, it, it, it was and it has been and, and continues to be a pretty, pretty, pretty busy playing field out there for companies uh, such as Harry Rosen. Uh, so I thought I'd get a little bit more about the life and legacy of Harry himself and a bit about where the, cust- the company is heading now uh, in his memory. Ian Rosen, as I mentioned, is president and now chief operating officer of Harry Rosen. Thanks so much for your time tonight. My condolences to you and your family. Thank you so much. And thanks for allowing me to share a little bit of Harry's story. Yeah, his story is such a, you know, it's one that we, that you, that's, it's almost like the stuff of a screenplay, right? Uh, someone comes, sees an opportunity, starts off with very little and builds it into something very big. But tell me a bit about the origins of, of Harry Rosen. I'm not sure many Canadians actually know that Harry Rosen was, in fact, uh, you know, that the, the company bore his name and it still does for all these years. It's the company he started. Yeah. And, and um, Harry Rosen is first and foremost my grandfather. So mm. I, I knew him as uh, Zadie Harry growing up. And uh, right. but but in terms of the professional side of things, um, he and his name have to be synonymous with entrepreneurship. He borrowed $500 from a family friend. And after working for a few years at a small haberdashery on Bloor Street, had enough confidence to go into business on his own. And when I say go into business, it wasn't like he was opening up with a store full of inventory. He was faking it. He put boxes on the shelves to make it look full. He actually worked with a fabric supplier to make himself look like he's in business. He had all all the bolts of fabric on consignment. Um, So he's really posturing that, hey, I really know menswear. And, and, you know, the one thing he wasn't posturing on was he knew menswear. Um, And he took it one client at a time, trying to win referral by referral. And his biggest differentiator in the early years, he was working with his brother, Lou, my my uncle. Um, they took copious notes on each and every client um, that shopped with them. And they, they started listening to what kind of job are they looking for? What is their styling preference? And that started to build into this kind of like what, what ultimately would become like this, the platform for a CRM or a customer relationship management system. But they had this great Rolodex when, you know, Ben called um they would know exactly what he was interviewing for what he liked what he didn't like last time and and it really set him apart um people really wanted to uh shop with harry um the i'll fast forward a little bit but where he really took off um was the fact that he 
went to New York on a shopping trip or a buying trip um, and started seeing what the um, men on Madison Avenue were wearing, the young advertising executives. And they were wearing this kind of softer tailoring look. He bought a suit from uh, a local store. He brought it back to a local manufacturer called Copley Manufacturing. And they almost reversed engineered what Harry would term as the Cambridge look. And it was just different than what other people are selling in the market. And a lot of young executives wanted to buy into it. That Mad Men look, right? I mean, that's, that's uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, that kind of, maybe not exactly. quite, but, but almost, yeah. It's amazing to think, um, because if you, if, if you don't, without the benefit of hindsight, you can't think of all the different places, all the competitors that your grandfather would have had over the many, many years in Toronto that don't exist anymore. And how he managed to not only survive, but also grow the business and what kind of, it takes a certain amount of gumption to to go from one store to what is now, you know, what we know as Harry Rosen. What do you think, what was it about your grandfather that seems so, I want to use the word fearless. I don't know if that's the right one. It's the perfect word. He made bold decisions that allowed the business to take on a much higher profile and be in the right place at the right time. So he was working at a 500 square feet on Parliament Street. He was starting to feel like he was outgrowing that. Most people who are living on a shoestring budget and, you know, off a 500, you know, dollar loan might look for something two times the size. Instead, he goes center ice, gets a location at Bay and Richmond, and it's 10 times the size. And he says, this is where we have to do business. This has to be the future of where we set up in Richmond Street. Um, an iconic store really helped catapult Harry Rosen um, into the, you know, into the everyday vernacular of everybody who was getting dressed at that time. Um, men just wanted to be dressed by Harry. And he was located right next to the young executives that were looking for that look. So he made bold moves several times through his career that set him apart. One of the things I found interesting, I actually know uh, someone who worked uh, at the Harry Rosen at the Rideau Center in Ottawa many, many years ago, back in the in the 80s, I believe, was when you expand, uh, it is difficult sometimes to maintain that uh, personalized service that I think your grandfather had become very well known for. And he told me that that when Harry would come through Ottawa, he would sit down with each and all the salespeople in the tailoring section specifically and sort of go over what what the rules were, or at least what the approach was. And he continued to do that, I gather, throughout his career. He was so focused on scaling his expertise that you know, shortly after he built this business, he turned to the ultimate teacher, the ultimate mentor. He really wanted to pass on his eye for service, his eye for um, fashionability. And I think Larry was such a great partner to him in helping to scale and standardize that level of service. Um, and that gave Harry the flexibility to be there, be there with the client, be there with the new team, get them inspired um, about what the Harry Rosen way is and isn't. Um, Harry himself used to orchestrate these phenomenally popular trunk shows where he was servicing the clients. People would line up around the door trying to get measured by Harry Rosen himself. Um, that's just who Harry was. And, um, and, and it really has allowed us to have this foundation to build upon, um, which not many businesses have. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to wax too poetic, but I get the impression he just always liked what he did. And I don't know if that's also an exaggeration, but I was, he just liked, liked clothes and liked putting people into stuff that made them feel good. He 
he loved the energy and excitement of being on the floor. One of the greatest um, things that I've been reflecting on the last number of weeks is the fact that I got to spend so much time with him on the sales floor where he was um, really a king among anybody else on the floor. Um, He, his feet never touched the floor. He had such an eye for when a customer might've done the horseshoe came in, touched a few piles of things, you know, put their hand on a few products and, and weren't, um, service the way he might uh, uh, want them to have been. And in classic Harry fashion, and I saw it several times, he'd follow them right out the door and say, is there a reason uh, why we didn't have what you were looking for? And that's the kind of listening um, that he brought to his position. And this is when he was in the role of chairman and, and CEO, right? It's not uh, it's not like that was his full-time job. Um, he just was so passionate about it. Yeah, if the customer had asked who are you, he could have just pointed up, right? It, it is, yeah. That's that's an incredible. That's an incredible. I, I, skill. I'll even I'll, I'll even tell you the number one story I have gotten over the last two weeks from so many people has been, um, I can't tell you this great, incredible man, serviced me, fit me for a, an incredible event. You know, it was a big interview. It was a big wedding. Whatever it is. And only after they had actually paid for the deposit did they find out it was Harry Rosen who serviced them. Um, and I've heard that story 15 times from 15 different people. And I'm sure it's happened hundreds and hundreds of times because Harry was so hands-on with how he was um, a presence in our business. Ian Rosen is president and COO of Harry Rosen. And he's joining me now. We're talking about the legacy of his grandfather, the Harry Rosen, who passed away on December 24th. And uh, there's been just a ton of tributes to him uh, since that happened. And we've been looking back at his legacy, the legacy of the business as well. Um, you've changed, I mean... Harry Rosen itself used to be very much a bricks and mortar, um, you know, sort of great customer service, as you mentioned. You grew the digital side as well. And that's been a big difference because it happened, I gather, I mean, just before the pandemic. So when the pandemic hit, although people were, you know, didn't have to wear suits to work anymore and that kind of thing, uh, the company seemed to be in a pretty decent position uh, to take advantage of the fact that people couldn't leave their houses anymore. Yeah, it's been an incredible era of change for us as a business. And I think really the thing that's allowed us to be so flexible and and forward thinking has been this idea that, you know, the customer ultimately gets to define what service is. The customer gets to decide what fashion looks like and feels like we get to put our point of view on top of it. Um, But the customer gets to to dictate what is um, in market, what is popular. And we've been very focused on listening to the client the whole way through. And when it comes to something like online, which people have continually said, like you're a traditionally brick and mortar retailer. Well, if we can provide a different level of service by having a competitive online offering to our clients who love shopping with us, then we're enhancing their experience of shopping with Harry Rosen by providing that service. Does it need to be our core focus? Do we need to be an online only platform? Absolutely not. And it's why we've been able to build our business with a bit of a point of view rather than just proliferate. And, and that that's a huge distinction for us. I'll give you a, a, a very quick example and I apologize for rambling, but Um, When we took the business online, we not only thought about building a great online experience for customers who go to www.harryrosen.com, we said, well, we've trained this incredible amount of people at the store who have client relationships that go back 10, 20, 30 years. How do they bring their business online? How do they change their business using this new frontier? We actually built them an application that allows them to 
curate the website down to a single page that gets received by their client and the sizes are already populated. So we were almost mimicking this idea of what's the great idea? What's the great part of shopping at Harry Rosen? Well, my guy or my girl understand what I'm looking for. Um, They lay it out on a table. They have it ready for me. My appointment's quick and efficient. Well, going online, how do we replicate that with the clothing advisor steering the person to say, hey, here are these great pair of page pants. You're a size 34. Here are all the colors we have. Add it to cart. They'll fit you. Get it shipped to your home. Come see me when you need something different. Um, That's kind of how we've been approaching growth, but keeping that kind of core vision that Harry had, which is listening to the customer in mind. It must have been the last I saw, I know you were talking, you were uh, interviewed a few times with Nordstrom up and left. And of course, I associate a lot of your stores with a lot of the same malls. So whether it's the Rideau Center uh, in Ottawa or, uh, you know, out out in Vancouver, even Toronto, it's not been an easy time for people in your business. Um, what do you think has helped I mean, what do you think is the challenge with the Canadian market? I guess part of it is just if you, I mean, I live out West now, I grew up in Montreal. You're selling two very different kinds of clothing to those two audiences, right? Um, the, you know, the infrastructure that we've built to run a national business with so many local and regional differences to it is expensive. And I think what a lot of people have, you know, come up against is this idea that you can take a cookie cutter approach to Canada, whether it's weather or sizing or fashionability, we think long and hard about how our downtown Montreal store is going to be different from our Laval store, mm-hmm. how different parts of Toronto are going to be segmented from a fashionability point of view. We're, we're down to that level. It's manageable for us, but it's a stretch. Um, I can only imagine doing that at the department store level. And that's why we consider ourselves and we'll always consider ourselves a specialty store um, because we're specialists when it comes to menswear and we're specialists when it comes to Canada. And that's all we're trying to do. Yeah. It's when you look back at, at your grandfather's legacy too, I can only imagine he probably wasn't a big fan of, you know, sneakers with suits and so on, but you're right. You change, you change with the times. Where do you see things going from here, because I mean, again, there are fewer competitors, I guess, but also we're seeing kind of the hollowing out a little bit of some of the downtown cores, uh, whether it be downtown Toronto or downtown Vancouver. It's just a bit different than it used to be. Um, where do you see yourself going in, in the next uh, in the next little while? And also, in honor of your grandfather's legacy, and your father, of course, is the CEO of the business now. Yeah, we we um, we consider ourselves first and foremost a curator. Um, we curate the world of fashion. Actually, this evening, I'm getting on a plane and taking off to Pitioma, which is um, the world's largest men's fashion show, trade show. Mm-hmm. And we'll be exploring a whole bunch of new collections and seeing what the market is offering men. And we'll curate that to honor and respect what each market, you know, uh, whether that's Winnipeg, whether it's Toronto, whether it's Ottawa, what they need to push fashion forward. We will continue to put our point of view on it. Um, we understand that fashion and the way that dress codes when it comes to work have changed aren't necessarily as dogmatic as before, but we feel very strongly that um, uh, there are great ways to build a wardrobe in this modern modern era. It's a lot more complicated to get dressed in the morning as a man today. Uh, it used to be the four suit uh wardrobe you had two grays two navies maybe one or two had a pattern or a check on it uh, and you had a whole bunch of dress shirts and ties that was a really easy way to get dressed in the morning now you have to look 
professional, maybe not too professional. You need to be able to dress up and down. Um, so you need a lot of different depth to and uh, range to your wardrobe that a man has never necessarily needed before. Um, we're finding our positioning ourselves as the expert when it comes to this modern world um, is paying off. I, I guess, and, and yes, and, and it is challenging these days because you notice just how different uh, definitions of sort of casual versus non-casual have become. A last thought about about your grandfather, uh, just a good, perhaps a good memory that you, I mean, you refer to him right off the bat as, as grandpa, right? I mean, or as Zaded. Um, yeah. Just some memories, your memories of him as you continue to carry. It must be interesting to go to work every day with, to a business that carries your name. Uh, a challenge and a blessing. It's a privilege, and um, we're just taking care of it for the next generation at this point. Um, I have three little girls and uh, a bunch of nieces and nephews, so um, we, we're we're entrusted with this vision, and we seek to carry it on for generations ahead. the The memory that I'll I'll share is kind of when personal and professional started to cross over. I used to do these retail walks with Harry, where he would you know, almost narrate what he was seeing in a mall. You know, we'd walk through, look at windows, talk about how the store was speaking to him. And those were just, you know, I felt like I could have taken a million notes, but I just made sure I was present. And those are some of the most special afternoons that I got to spend with um, somebody who just wanted to teach. And he was so giving with that point of view. Um, The one thing I also love about Harry is he listened and he was so curious about how digital was going to change business. Uh, I taught him how to do a buy online pickup in store order. Didn't quite understand how it was paid for. Uh, I simulated the exact same exercise at a Starbucks and he kept trying to tip the barista. And I was like, don't worry, it's (laughs) it's I've already tipped them. Um, So maybe, you know, we we were at a different era, but it was just incredible how curious curious he was about um this new world and i think he he even at his uh later age uh, or in later stages had an appreciation for the fact that this was going to redefine what we did and he was excited um by the fact that i was taking on the challenge along with my brother now well ian uh thank you so much for your time i appreciate it thank you for having me uh and, and again giving us a platform to continue to share harry's incredible story this was something that was announced today that will come as really no surprise. You've been paying attention to the news over the past year, but 2023 is now officially the hottest year on record. Copernicus, the European Climate Agency, says the last year was 1.48 degrees Celsius, Celsius above pre-industrial times, beating out 2016's record of 1.25 and beating it out by quite a bit. Re- reporter Rita Foley says the rising heat has had a worldwide impact. 2023 was off the charts warm, according to the European Climate Agency, Copernicus. It says 2023 broke the global annual heat record, coming in 2.66 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial times. The record heat made life miserable and sometimes deadly here in North America, in Europe, China, and many other places last year. And that's not all. This month, January of 2024, is on track to be so warm that for the first time, a 12-month period will exceed the limit that the world hoped to stay within in the 2015 Paris Climate Accord to avoid the most severe effects of warming, says Copernicus. I'm Rita Foley. 
Copernicus also said the temperatures during 2023 likely exceeded those of any period in at least the last 100,000 years. We certainly know uh, we've had, a, we certainly suffered through the impacts of a lot of big weather events uh, and a lot of big events over the course of this year. Uh, none, none more important, perhaps, than the uh, major wildfires that burned right across the country uh, throughout throughout 2023, a record wildfire season, uh, 1.85 million hectares of land burnt in Canada in 2023. Uh, we wanted to dig into this one a little bit more because, of course, these uh, these announcements come out. You want to know, make sense of them. Uh, who better to do that than Gordon McBean? He's a professor emeritus in the Department of Geography and Environment at Western University. He's also the chair of the Canadian Association of Professionals in Climate Change, and he's been an advisor to the federal government on environmental policy over the years. He's also led several reports on climate change for the UN. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight, Gord. Well, thank you very much, Ben, for inviting me. I suppose if you've been paying attention through 2023, what we learned today is hardly comes as a huge surprise. But to see it encapsulated the way it was today, it would be doing it. It wouldn't be doing it justice to say we just had the warmest year on record. No, it's it's not only happened, but it is very important in a, both the sense of our climate system and also, let's say, in a political sociological sense of really flagging the issue. We are really warming, and we've just set a record for the warmest year on record, and the likelihood is that next year will be even warmer. And those records, I think what was astounding was that the records were just broken. They were shattered. What exactly is going on? Uh, Because I think, you know, there there were different things happening. Certainly ocean temperatures is something we talked about quite a bit over 2023. But when you add it all up, if you look back at the year that was, uh, what was driving these, these really significant jumps in temperature? Well, I think the evidence that's still to be fully clarified, but nonetheless, the the very clear that the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the carbon dioxide emissions coming into the atmosphere are still increasing despite all the international agreements to reduce the emissions. The numbers are still going up. And the climate system is a, a system that where overall that average temperature, first of all, I should stress is for the globe, And if we think about it from a Canadian perspective, we're probably warming at about twice as fast as that for most of us. And the Canadian Arctic, three to four times as fast as that, because the ocean is warming much slower because, you know, huge pot of water takes a lot more time and energy to warm up its temperatures than does a landmass like where we are and the atmospheres above them. So we're seeing this this major change, and it really stepped up, and we're now at essentially 1.5 degrees Celsius warming than we've seen in the past. And that was what had been agreed to be as our target internationally. And that gives it special symbolic and political significance. Yeah. When we, um, there were a lot of examples this year of, of temperatures in the far North that were simply astounding. I mean, there were some, Mm -hmm. there were some record temperatures uh, way up North this year that, that really were, were, were cause for pause, I'd say. Yes, the Canadian Arctic is really warming, and they're very, in a sense, susceptible because the ice, water, land systems as they exist in the Arctic are, let's say, subject to changes that, smaller changes in a temperature sense that can cause bigger, let's say, climatological change in the sense that the way they melt the the, the ice that's covering over the water and that exposes it in ways that it then starts absorbing radiation from the sun when mm-hmm. in the summertime and that sort of amplifies the warming up because previously that ice was just reflecting it and now it's opened it up and it comes in and warms up that 
ocean that used to be underneath the ice. Right. So it starts that cycle. I mean, you've been watching this for, for years now. What What is your reaction to 2023? I've been reading different uh, people talking about what was released today. And, and there is a sense of surprise, to, to be honest, it, it, with just how much warmer it was globally in 2023 uh, than, than it had been in years past, and specifically in that record year of 2016. Yes. Well, I think, uh, I mean, kind of mixed feelings in a sense. I mean, as a a person who lives on the planet, have children and grandchildren and friends and colleagues and their children living all around the world. I'm very concerned about it. But at the same time, I guess I'm kind of hoping that this might motivate a level of action we're going to see, hopefully, from countries, including Canada, that will actually take their commitments on reducing greenhouse gas emissions seriously and really do it. And also, the it flags the reality that the climate is changing and it will continue to change the reality is for at least 50 60 years or more because it takes that long for the the atmosphere ocean system working together to readjust to that increased amount of greenhouse gases that's been put in the atmosphere by human activities and so we need to adapt to the, that reality and become a what's being called a climate proof society we need to set up our homes, our properties, our industry, our our industrial thinking, transportation systems, that they're not impacted by what is exceedingly likely going to happen of more hot years, hotter years, with increased uh, extreme events such as not only heat waves and wildfires, but also storms, floods, and other such environmental issues. Yeah, because we have seen, uh, without without you know, laying laying it all at the feet of climate change. We have seen uh, in this country even a dramatic increase in sort of extreme weather events. Obviously, we come, we're coming off a record wildfire season as well. So Canadians don't have to look far, can look out their back door to find, to find the impacts of what's happened uh, or what we were witnessing in 2023. Yes, definitely. And we need to say, well, it's time to, if we haven't done it already, it's time to take action so that when these extreme events uh, like, like wildfires, which seem, well, I'm sure are more likely to happen in the future as we continue to warm, that you're, you know, that nice country property you have with the house on it that you've so enjoyed all these years is not sitting right next to trees that are connected to the full ecosystem of the wildfire threat. And so this, you don't end up with a wildfire in your house burning up with it. Gordon McBean is with us. He is a professor emeritus in the Department of Geography and Environment at Western. He's chair of the Canadian Association of Professionals in Climate Change. Uh, you already mentioned that 2024 may well be warmer than 2023. There are some other things going on here. It's an El Nino year, right? So there are some other things going on uh, that may may have had some impact last year and are expected to have a bigger impact this year. Yes. The El Nino, for example, as you mentioned, is one that often has its biggest effect in terms of the climate implications for particularly our part of the world. It's a an ocean atmospheric event that happens in a sense naturally and in the equatorial Pacific Ocean north of the uh, equator. So it's, and it causes the transfer of energy and things up to higher latitudes. And that can both add to the climate change, but also add to the, the risks and the threats, the impacts of major storms. So we need to recognize that the, El Nino effects happen not only the year of the of its sort of official status, but in the following years as well. 
You often see, I mean, I hear people make this argument all the time. I lived in China for a while that, you know, Canada is, uh, despite that per capita, we're pretty significant emitters that, uh, you know, a lot of the major emitters, the, the real significant emitters, whether it be China or others around the world, that if, as long as they continue to emit uh, relentlessly, that there's really no difference that Canadians can make uh, to this in the grand scheme of things. It's an argument you must hear, too. What do you say? What do you say to that one? Because it makes some sense uh, and it feels feels like we, especially now with the cost of living crisis, that, that Canadians are, are, have entered a period where they're not really willing to make a lot of sacrifices for something that feels like an existential threat. Yes, well, I think that Canadians need to recognize that even though, as you said, uh, you know, our total number of emissions are, are smaller in numbers of tons of CO2, etc., but per person, we are very high. We're about 14 or 15 tons per person, about the similar to the United States and a lot higher than China. And do you really argue that it's our, our, we have no responsibility as individuals, it's only our collective thing? I don't think we take that attitude on other issues. And I think the important thing also is, though, that because of its impact in terms of the climate we're going to have globally and the impacts of those events recognizing that Canada was warming about twice as fast as the rest of the planet, that we're going to see more impacts of a changing climate, and we need to take actions to not only reduce our emissions, but to reduce our exposure and vulnerability to the uh, climate extreme events that are going to become more and more prevalent and more and more horrific. In your, in your time watching this unfold politically, when one looks at it politically now, it has become something of a divisive issue, right? I mean, there was there was certainly uh, there was scientific consensus on this, but there is certainly no societal or political consensus on this, at least not. I mean, when they do surveys now, a vast majority of Canadians believe that something needs to be done. I think the, the point that's always brought up is, is that expedient politically and how much of a difference does that make uh, these days? Because we are seeing, certainly in the U.S., but here too, you know, there's, we do see political parties that are less committed to, to this fight than others. Yes, that's certainly an issue. And interestingly, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change you look at their latest report, the one that came out in 2021 and 2022, and the report in 2022 included the section on the impacts of climate change on North America. And in there, some of the text includes words, and I'm just approximating and put them, that the effect of climate change deniers is having a bigger impact on the responses in the United States and also in Canada than is needed and globally. And that Although can, there are more fewer deniers, or at least more horrific deniers, let's say in Canada compared to the United States, but nonetheless, we need to move ahead. We need to take positive actions because there are things we can do, and we can show that scientifically the climate is changing, as we're now seeing very clearly, and that the impacts of this uh, are going to be quite large in terms of dollar amounts, but also in terms of, let's say, the effects on us as individuals, their effects, our mental health, our attitudes towards things, etc. And we need to take action to reduce those things. So we need to do the climate change adaptation part, which is still floundering around between multi-levels of government in Canada between, well, who's responsible? Is it the city, the, the town, or the province, or the the federal government, and they all say, well, they got a role, but they we got to get the money from somebody else. Well, we all need to contribute to it, and we need to personally and 
and to some extent financially, because the benefits financially, according to some very good economic analyses, are that the investments we will make over, say, a 10-year period will more will result in a much bigger return on investment. And so we'll actually be living better off a decade from now in terms of adapting to a climate and making our societies more resilient than we would otherwise be. Well, uh, Gordon, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ben, and uh, very pleased to talk to you. And thank you very much for bringing this forward to Canadians who are listening and paying attention. We were looking for a lab that could develop this film. Um, We wanted to be very careful with it, knowing we had one chance, and knowing that it could be damaged and all that. We couldn't just take it to the local photo match or whatever. And um, it turns out, thanks to a colleague of mine who did all the research on this, that the the best lab at handling old found film that has yet to be developed happens to be in Indian Head, Saskatchewan, um, not far from Regina. And so uh, we all eventually got the film um, to Regina or to Saskatchewan and had it developed at this lab there in Indian Head. John Branch, New York Times reporter who was with me last week, talking about this incredible story he wrote about this ill-fated expedition uh, to climb the highest peak in the Western Hemisphere in Argentina back in 1973 called Aconcagua. Um, Two people on that expedition died, including a woman, a teacher named Janet Johnson. She had a camera with her. Now, there's always been speculation about what happened, whether whether their deaths were an accident or not. Uh, Two people died. And she had carried a camera with her that was never found until 2020. It turned up. And so that's what he's talking about. They wanted to develop the film that was on it to find out if it could shed any light on what exactly had happened. So they found this company in Saskatchewan. Now, it turns out the photographs, and there were many of them that they managed to recover, didn't actually solve the mystery. But it piqued my interest about who is the Saskatchewan-based company that are the world leaders in developing expired film like this. So we thought we'd reach out to them. And joining me now are Heather Harkins and Gerald Fryer, both work with Film Rescue International in Indian Head, Saskatchewan. That's uh, 70 kilometers East of Regina. Thank you both. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. I thought it was such an interesting way that it was described by one of your colleagues that really what you do is that you open time capsules. And I thought that was such an interesting way of of putting what it is that you do. But wow, there are so few of you out there these days. Yeah, that's yeah, I I, I think you have to have a lot of experience and you have to have a lot of special knowledge to 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 work with these lost and found films and that's why there were, were only a few maybe let's say just us yeah. in the world they're doing this in the last week i've opened packages from new zealand from england from australia many uh, states and many many provinces across north america people really are finding that there aren't that many places who still do what we do, both in terms of processing undeveloped material and in digitizing formats that people are finding it uh, hard to find now. Yeah, I think that's that's the thing. And, and, and because of all these interesting stories we had in the media in the last couple of years, then people got more and more aware of it and, and realized that, yes, Film Rescue is is in Saskatchewan, but we're doing jobs, we're getting jobs from all over the world. Heather, tell me a bit about what the average package looks like, because I can kind of picture it because we've all had, we all find 
film, rolls of film, undeveloped rolls of film lying around, and probably less and less these days. But uh, these are these are some people really want to know what's on those what's on those pictures, for better or worse. Sometimes it's true, and for I mean, for me and my job, it's like every day is Christmas morning. I, it's a whole <laughs> lot of what's this, and sometimes even after I open the package, I ask myself, what's this? Uh, and uh, so it's very often a box from some other thing that this person does, their hobby or an old Amazon package. They've put their home movies or their film negatives or their videotapes, whatever they have in there. There's often an explanatory note. I found this in my Nana's purse or I bought this camera at an auction. I'm not sure what this is. And then it's my job to figure out what it is as clearly as possible to help the darkroom do their job or the transfer technicians do their job making new digital copies of this material. So, Gerald, tell me, because the way I came to you, of course, was was because we did an interview last week with John Branch, who's a reporter with The New York Times, and there'd been a camera discovered 50 years after the fact uh, of an ill-fated expedition on a very tough mountain to climb in Argentina, and there'd been a camera that was suddenly appeared in 2020. And obviously, they really wanted to get those pictures developed, and they did, and you, you were the ones who made it happen for them. But just the process of it, because it must be challenging. A lot of these film roles have have sat there for a very long time, untouched, waiting to be developed. Yeah, so with uh, with these uh, roles from the Argentinian round, we were quite lucky. So uh, because they were, let's say, they were in a kind of freezer for the last 50 years because they were covered in ice and snow in on that glacier. So, and that was uh, for us, that was the good thing because there was no moisture in that because they were in a, in a, in a bag or one was in, was in that camera. So we were really lucky because we got amazing pictures out of that and they looked like they were shot just yesterday. So, and, but, but we also got some other stuff just recently from the Yukon glacier and there was the different thing. So there was nothing on it. The emulsion was nearly deteriorated. There was nothing to get out of it. So I'll remember that that camera we got from Alaska. Completely covered in rust. Yeah, right. So that's why we were, were so lucky and everybody was so happy to see these amazing pictures that came out of these roles that we got from this expedition, from this glacier tour, Yeah. Yeah, because Heather, I, I guess you are, in fact, the last resort, right? I mean, by the time film arrives to you, you're the last line of defense in all of this. How does it work? How do you actually make it make it happen? Because my mom used to be a photographer, and she used to develop film in our back room, and I remember all the smelly chemicals and so on and how it worked. <laughs> I, I, I'm picturing that. I'm picturing sort of trays and tongs, and I'm not sure that's how it still works with these rolls of film. Uh, yes and no. So... <laughs> <laughs> It worked. Uh, yeah, it's it's pretty much the same like the people did 30, 40 years ago when they when they had their dark room at home. What we're doing, uh, it's more advanced, uh, but it's not like a one hour photo. No, show. we we have tweaked the chemistry to boost the contrast as much as possible with older, antiquated, expired film. It tends to be fading at that point. So we have a chemical approach that works as hard as possible, but as safely as possible to recover whatever image we can get out of there. And then after we finish processing, we do scan the material and sit down with it and try a little digital editing to pull out any remaining image. So 
it's a really careful and again, slow process. Uh, but when it works, it's incredibly rewarding. Yeah, you must have to sit down with the people who sent it in and sort of walk them through a bit of what it is you're going to do, because there are no guarantees, obviously. Yeah, we try to do that with our order form, uh, which you can find on our website at filmrescue.com. It's a lengthy, lengthy order form that asks you to do quite a bit of reading and interacting before you send us your material. Um, And even then, we still get some curveballs and some surprises um, and we do often have to check in with people. Uh, yeah, such as such, such as I know you can't go into great detail, but what kind of curveballs do you see? Well, just yesterday, I had to email someone and tell him that the 12 metal canisters of Kodachrome film he had sent us were all completely empty. Some photographer must have been planning to refill them from a larger oh. magazine of film stock. So that was a heartbroken Um, And sometimes, too, we just can't recover image. So what I try to do in that case is send them a picture of what we do have and say, oh, I'm so sorry. There was nothing discernible. Uh, With our still film processing, we have a no image, no charge guarantee. So at least I'm not asking these folks for money. But uh, it is disappointing when they're hoping to find, especially if they have a real dream of, oh, I was looking for this one picture. I'm sure we have it of my mother. And then they get disappointed when we come back with nothing or perhaps a photograph of a lamp in their mother's home as opposed to the woman herself. Yeah, it reminds me, of course, because I'm old enough to remember the time when photography was exactly as you describe. And now, of course, we live in this digital age where you know exactly what you've captured a nanosecond after you captured it. But there was so much anticipation involved in shooting pictures on film. And I can imagine that if it's been sitting or it's been found after many, many years, that anticipation must uh, be exponentially higher. I think that's true. And sometimes there will be a note penciled in on the box or the can that a film is in and people really think, okay, this is for sure what I'm going to see. Um, I would even extend that now format wise to some of the earlier digital formats. We just got a big box of mini DV tapes, high eight tapes. We sometimes get VHS tapes. Uh, Very similar. People think they remember what's on them and they're really excited and they kept this material around because they care about it, but we're not quite sure what we're going to be delivering to them once we do get that material at Film Rescue. Yeah, we have that story from that photographer from Boston and he or his partner, um, they sent us 4,000 rolls of film material from the 1960s, from the 1970s. And this guy, he was uh, MC in, in one of these famous Boston music halls. And he became friends with Ron Wood, with Rod Stewart, with all these big names from the rock and roll area. So, and then uh, he kept all his roles unprocessed in his Boston home. And some were turned out really good. We got amazing pictures out of that. And we found a lot of musicians, artists, and on these roles. But others, they, yeah, there was just nothing. Or they were so dense, it was hard to see an image. And that is the thing we always have to struggle with. That mm-hmm. uh, Sometimes the, the film itself is in a really good condition. And sometimes the material is so bad and there is nothing we can do. So and that's why we're starting with that black and white process to get an image out of that. And and then later we are adding a kind in a, in a second process, in a second chemical process, we are adding the color. So on 
with with some material it works and with some other material it doesn't. Heather Harkins and Gerald Fryer both work with Film Rescue International. They're based in Indian Head, Saskatchewan, which is about 70 kilometers east of Regina. They are, and we found this out last week as we interviewed uh, John Branch, the New York Times reporter who wrote this incredible story uh, called Ghosts on the Glacier about uh, this ill-fated expedition uh, up a summit in Argentina back in 1973. A camera was recovered in 2020 from one of the two people that died on that expedition. And uh, it was Film Rescue that developed those pictures. You can see them in the New York Times, by the way. They did a fantastic job with them. They didn't reveal what happened, but they certainly added a lot to that story. There must be reasons at times, because I remember back in the day, you didn't bring, you couldn't bring every roll of film to the, to the one-hour film processing. There must be some surprises on those, on those uh, rolls of film as well that you have to, I guess, be delicate, delicate with the clients, right, Heather? It's very, very true. I, I have learned the most common answer to why didn't my parents ever uh, develop this roll of film from their honeymoon? My mother left it in her lingerie drawer. Well, there's nudity on that roll. <laughs> right. and, and we do get quite a bit of, um, oh, you know, holiday season, kids on the beach, and then the end of the roll will perhaps be dad back in the hotel room with his pants off. You're like, oh. <laughs> so I, I have a warning that I add uh, when I'm delivering galleries of images to our customers, just to let them know there's some nudity in here. If you want me to remove it, just let me know and I'll take it off before you access your gallery. These customers are the first to pay me every time. No one has ever asked to have the nudity removed. I guess they're just curious. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, interestingly enough, because both of you have have long backgrounds in in photography of some sort, uh, neither of you are from anywhere near uh, Indian Head, Saskatchewan. It really speaks volumes about Film Rescue that the two of you are there as well, doesn't it, Gerald? Yes, that's right. Uh, so I'm originally from Germany, and I moved here because of that job. And before I started my my job here at Film Rescue, I was a uh, uh, expert and 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 trainer for digitizing project for museums, libraries, and archives. And this is another thing we're doing at Film Rescue. So we we are also doing a lot of digitizing for museums, for archives, and other government institutes. So and yeah, that's brought me to Saskatchewan. And I never regret it. So no. It was- Same with you, Heather, right? You were in Rochester. I imagine that was sort of, must have been Kodak legacy to some extent. Yeah, that was really, really fun. So I got to go to grad school and learn about Kodak science from the scientists who invented a lot of that technology and who worked there. It was really lovely and wonderful. And I knew when I got out of that program that I wanted to handle the goods. I wanted to be somewhere where people were still working with archival film material. And, uh, and Film Rescue does every day. Yeah. Uh, it's, it feels like, I mean, because the formats have changed so quickly over the past uh, 30 years or so, it feels like this is a very valuable service that you provide, because if not, these images would be lost, would be lost, including the ones we saw in that New York Times article. Yeah, that's for sure. So luckily, on the other hand, that uh, we have a kind of revival of analog film so a lot of people got more and more interested in that and uh but but this is not what we're doing at film rescue but but on the other hand that gives us new jobs so because we got more work because of that so film is not really dead so it, it's not like 20 30 40 years ago and then there will never be again but um yeah there are a lot of people that are interested in dark room and in taking pictures with old analog cameras and collecting cameras and uh so we got that 
really amazing role from England. Yes. And uh, that was the first Kodak role, uh, or the, the first Kodak camera ever. That was the first roll film camera. It was from 1888. And yeah, that camera um, that a collector, he bought it in from Australia, I think. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, a fabulous woman named Miss Mackenzie, an heiress who traveled the world winning golf tournaments, uh, took up an interest in photography, and she kept meticulous notes. So when a camera collector named David Gardner bought this Kodak camera, he had all of her receipts and notes to know exactly when the film had been purchased and exposed. Wow. Did you develop that? Did you manage? Was there something to develop there? Yeah. We got one image out of it. And it's an image of a couple. And they, it looks like that they are somewhere on a, on a golf course because that woman, she was in... In, in golf sports so we got something out of it and that's definitely uh that's the oldest film that was that was ever processed yeah, yeah and, I, and i should emphasize we just work with expired film so right. if you just picked up a camera this morning you have brand new film there are many fabulous film labs that will develop your new film for you we'll be the ones you call after your film expires yes Yes. Any caveats to, to people out there? Because again, there's always, you know, there's always expectations. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it's, it's just expired film. But do you do, you, I guess they can find this all on, on the order form. But do you have any any uh, sort of guidance to people out there who may be holding on to rolls of old film, wondering what, what might be on them? Yeah, my best tip is if you can afford to do it, just get that stuff processed as soon as you can. Um, because the, the emulsion is not going to last forever. Right. It's wonderful that we developed uh, a negative that was over 100 years old. That was very unique. That was a very special piece. A lot of things, even from just 30 years ago, are not going to last too much longer. So uh, if you're able to preserve your family treasures, uh, I would urge you to do that soon, including your films, including all kinds of other stuff. Yeah. And well worth I mean, clearly for both of you uh, coming from the U.S. and from Germany, the move to Indian Head, Saskatchewan. And if you didn't know that Film Rescue International existed in Indian Head, now you do is obviously well worth the move. Definitely. Yeah. 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 Every day at Film Rescue, there was something new and there was something to discover. And 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 even for us, with, with our professional experiences, there was always something to learn. And, and I think that's so exciting for us. Absolutely. Heather and, and Gerald, thank you so much for shedding some light on an organization uh, in a place that I don't think a whole lot of Canadians know about, but I guess we're learning more and more about it now. Thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for having me.